Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hi, Amber. Great to be back, as always. And Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. We do have a ton to get to in today's show, but I do want to preview what we're going to talk about as our main segment. We have our features reporter, Kara Bayless, on And she did a really interesting deep look at the FBI supplemental investigation about Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. I know that sounds like it was a million years ago, but the interesting thing that came out of that conversation with Kara is about how some of the potential shortcomings of that investigation could impact future nominees. So we talk about how that could, you know, maybe be resolved to give us better vetting of candidates. Kara wrote an awesome piece about that, and I greatly look forward to hearing that talk as we sit here. I haven't heard it. So anyway, we are chock full of news today. And even before we get to the main news, I wanted to offer a couple of updates before we get into the meat of the show here. First off, just moments before we started recording here on Thursday, President Biden announced that he would be pardoning all federal convictions for possession of marijuana and also starting the process of trying to delist marijuana as a Schedule One drug. Now, we were talking about this a little bit before. There's a lot of stuff in the weeds here about like exactly how expansive this announcement is. It's obviously a huge deal for a president to issue a federal pardon across the board, but most convictions for weed possession happen at the state level. Most federal convictions are accompanied by other charges. We'll get a sense of the scope of this in the coming weeks, and we'll probably talk about it more on Pro Se, but definitely keep your eyes peeled for that. It's a huge legal shift from the federal government. I have a feeling we'll get back into this as we learn more about all the parameters and kind of have a chance to digest it. But at least we can safely say that for those pushing for legalization, this is a little wind at their sails there. Definitely. The other thing I wanted to just offer a very quick update on was the civil litigation against Alec Baldwin and the producers of his film Rust. Following, I'm sure everybody knows what I'm talking about, there was the very high-profile death of the film's cinematographer last year after a gun that Alec Baldwin was holding went off on set on accident. So the family of that cinematographer, a woman named Helena Hutchins, has settled a wrongful death suit with Baldwin and the film's producers for their, most of the terms of the settlement are undisclosed, but it does give her widower, uh, Matthew Hutchins, an executive producer credit on the movie, which is going to resume filming in January, which kind of startled me. I didn't yeah. think this movie was going to happen at all. Um, no. I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, they are resuming filming, and this uh, cinematographer's widower is going to have an EP credit on it. Both sides basically put out statements that said the things you expect people to say here. It's a It's a terrible accident. They didn't want to go through this protracted litigation about it. But I bring it up only to say that Baldwin and the other people involved with this production may not be out of the woods. All that I'm talking about is kind of closing the book on the Hutchins family's civil suit. But prosecutors in New Mexico, which is where the film was shooting and where this uh, tragic incident took place, 
they suggested as recently as last month in, in late September that they may still bring criminal charges against Alec Baldwin and as many as three other people involved in the production. And it was like this, this kind of leaked out in the trades where there were lots of like gun safety issues raised even before this person was killed. So an interesting wrinkle, but there will be more to talk about, I suspect, especially if these criminal charges go forward. Yeah, a lot to keep our eyes on. And, you know, speaking of things that we've had our eyes on and have repeatedly discussed on Pro Se, we, of course, have a massive update on the Elon Musk Twitter dispute. It looks like Elon is actually going to go through with buying Twitter after all. We will wait and see. I'm not, you know, ready to to say that it's It's for sure sure happening. (laughs) But uh, on Tuesday, and this is just about two weeks before that legal battle with Twitter was set to head to trial... Musk told the SEC that his original $44 billion offer was back on the table. Okay, we've talked about this in the show before, but it feels like real ping pong vibes to me where Musk will say something, then Twitter says something. It's I've kind of lost myself in the weeds a little. Kind of orient me again about how we got back on track with this deal. Right, yeah, absolute, absolute ping pong match going on here. So we last discussed this about a month ago, and that's episode 265. If you want to go back, give that a listen. So at that time, Delaware Chancellor Kathleen McCormick shot down Musk's attempt to push back the trial to November, but she also allowed Musk's counterclaims to be added to the suit. And since then, Twitter secured an order allowing discovery into evidence of possible communications between Musk and a former top Twitter security chief. This is the the whistleblower. He's a whistleblower. Yeah, Yeah, he's been in all the headlines lately. He's alleged serious security and financial disclosure concerns about the company's business. So both sides have also uh, called for sanctions based on the purported withholding and potential destruction of evidence in this dispute. And Musk has also reportedly been negotiating with Twitter in recent weeks in the hopes of reaching a lower-priced deal. But ultimately, that did not pan out for him. You know, as a member of the media, I try not to put my thumb on the scale, and we try to keep it pretty level here on this show. I mean, I was very interested to see what might come at trial in this suit. And then there's been, as we've already said, this back and forth of, okay, I'll buy it. Actually, I don't want to buy it. All right, you twist my arm, I'll buy it. Yeah. Uh, But what did... (laughs) And now this trial is not going forward, at least as we speak today. There's been lots of developments all the time. But what did each party, you know, Musk and Twitter, I mean, how did they... I assume there was some like a little bit of ass covering going on. I don't know. Uh, What do they have to say about this breakthrough and this acrimonious litigation that is now no longer happening? Well, we'll get to this in a little bit. The litigation is still technically ongoing. I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But in the SEC filing, Musk said that his change of position is without admission of liability or prejudice to any rights including his defenses and counterclaims, should the lawsuit continue. Or if Twitter fails to meet its obligations under that original April 25th take private contract, he you know still wants to be able to duke this out in court. And then Twitter said in a statement that basically just it had received a letter from Musk 
and it intends to close the transaction at that initially agreed upon price of $54.20 per share. Okay, but you said the litigation's not actually over. So yeah. and what? even in the answer you just gave, it's like yeah. there's like a marker down <laughs> it's a like, little bit. Yeah. Yeah, the litigation's not over. And also if you do anything else I don't like, it's definitely not over. So <laughs> exactly. Conditional. Where, yeah. where are we with that litigation exactly? So yeah, a couple a couple things that we can go through here. Musk has only he's indicated that he wants a stay of the litigation, which we should know, you know, of course would not fully end things, which is posit. But he actually hasn't moved for a stay yet with the court, at least as of today. And Chancellor McCormick said that she continues to press on toward the trial set for mm-hmm. October 17th. Today, um, again, that's we're recording this on Thursday, she actually set new pre-trial discovery deadlines that are pretty tight. So she's like, all right, folks, let's get this wrapped. Like we're we're heading to trial. Frankly, she sounds like she doesn't trust that it's for sure going to happen either. Um, She's like, I don't care what you guys are putting out on Twitter about this litigation. If we're doing a trial, we're doing discovery. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So an assistant professor of law at Brooklyn Law School, Andrew Jennings, spoke with Law360 earlier this week. And he said even a stay of the action wouldn't exactly give Twitter the ironclad guarantee of closing that it wants. Musk has made, as we've talked about in the past, several attempts to get the trial pushed back. So Twitter and the court really need to be a little leery and consider that this could be what the professor called a delay gambit. So, you know, this is all to say this could very well resolve everything. But also we could still have a trial on our hands. I you guess. never know with Elon Musk. You He's really a don't. wild card. You really don't. Yeah. So we will be... We'll be waiting and watching. For our second story today, I am back on that patent grind, y'all. Yeah. I want to talk yeah, about... Yeah, you are, Always Amber. on that sure. grind. This is where you flourish, if I'm being honest. <laughs> I mean, there's many areas of the law I love, but I will admit this one has <laughs> a real soft spot for me. So I want to talk about something that is pretty unusual in the IP world. It's a, it's a very specific sanction story. There's a company called Open Sky Industries that was hit with the heaviest sanctions available by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office director after she found that Open Sky tried to extort Intel and a patent owner that won a 2.2 billion verdict from Intel in an infringement case. Oh boy. Well, this has been the talk of the IP town, if you will. Um, (laughs) But what exactly did the USPTO director decide here? Yeah. So the director is Kathy Vidal, and she issued a precedential decision in a director review where she slammed Open Sky for abusing the patent trial and appeal board process. As a reminder for people who Amber, are not please IP tell nerds. us. Please <laughs> yeah. tell us about the patent trial and appeal board process. Sure. I'm not going to get too deep here, but just to set the stage of where we are in this saga, PTAB does administrative adjudication about the patentability of issued patents. So can you actually have a patent for this? Yes or no? We review. Um, so this isn't about infringement. That's done in the courts. So just so people can keep that straight. So in this case, Vidal said Open Sky was hoping to either extort money from a company called VLSI or from Intel to undermine a verdict issued by a Texas jury in 2021. The PTAB had agreed to review Open Sky's challenge to the patents that were at issue in that trial. 
And what Vidal was looking at in her review were ethical allegations against Open Sky, which I would like to note here is a newly formed company that appears to only exist to challenge VLSI's patents. Nice. So, One of those. Yeah. So the USPTO director said Open Sky may face some financial sanctions and Open Sky is barred from acting as more than just a silent observer in the PTAB proceedings as they continue. Yeah. I mean, we we see this in the patent space from time to time. The idea that, you know, you open a business, an LLC, whatever you're doing to just that exists only to assert potentially superfluous patent claims. But what exactly is Open Sky alleged to have done? Because this is like pretty remarkable. I personally didn't even know that the USPTO like did sanctions. This they is have unusual. Own... Yeah, they, it's well, they... very unusual. It makes sense. They have their own quasi-judicial court system, so it makes sense that they would be able to do it. But it still raised a lot of eyebrows on the patent bar this week. So what exactly is Open Sky accused of doing here? So in this pretty lengthy opinion, the director went step by step through a series of issues with Open Sky's conduct. She said the company engaged in discovery misconduct, failed to follow her orders, and generally abused the PTAP process. And when you put all that together, it, quote, warrants sanctions to the fullest extent of my power. So we're not mincing words here. No. This was bad stuff. She was mad. So the director had ordered a bunch of discovery in July from Open Sky, VLSI, and Intel, all of the companies involved. The requests included information on why Open Sky was formed, who's involved in that <laughs> company, and what talks had they had with other parties. So She's skirting around what we're talking about here. Like, what yeah. kind of company are you? Um, <laughs> so Open Sky pretty much straight up didn't comply, producing just a minimal number of documents and what was characterized as wholly inadequate answers to those inquiries. Open Sky, for their part, said that the director was going past the boundaries of what she's allowed to request and digging into what they called undisputed areas. And that was also going to violate their constitutional rights. She was not having any of it. Here's the quote from Vidal. It is not appropriate for Open Sky to simply assert that something is undisputed and on that basis refuse to comply with my order by failing to produce or log such materials. So you just can't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the main issue that we've been sort of talking around a little bit is what is Open Sky all about? Um, Vidal asked that question pretty directly saying this. It is not possible to ascertain whether or not Open Sky merely acts as a shell for other entities seeking to challenge the patent. And as a newly formed entity, seemingly created solely for filing this IPR, Open Sky must have some source of undisclosed funding. Ooh, the shadows, the old patent syndicate. Uh, yeah, like how do you get set up and how do you have money yeah. as a company? What do you do and why are you here? Yeah. Well, so what's, you mentioned extortion. What's the deal with the extortion claim? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just love that I get to throw that word into a patent discussion. <laughs> yeah. You don't hear it every day. So the conclusion here from the director is that Open Sky never really cared about challenging VLSI's patent. It just wanted to use the PTAB process as leverage to get money out of right. either VSL, VLSI uh. or Intel, like either one or both. <laughs> the director pointed out that Open Sky was not meaningfully engaged when there were oral arguments at PTAB and also drew an inference that Open Sky initiated the settlement agreements while doing this kind of double dealing by trying to get money out of either company and then throw the other one under the bus. <laughs> um, You're right. At one point, 
OpenSky had sent a proposed deal to VLSI that included suggesting that they delay responses and manipulate the appearance of expert witnesses. Oh, Um, oh, no. Yeah, I've got another (laughs) I've got another quote. I just couldn't help myself with these. They're all pretty juicy and good. Here's the quote from the opinion. Initiating a legal proceeding to deliberately sabotage for money, including offering to violate the duties of candor and good faith owed to the board amounts to an abuse of the process. Which, if that's true, it sure does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting. I mean, this is like, this is an administrative process that like, it's frequently used. There's many interests in securing new patents and doing all this stuff. And I feel like, you know, people don't often pay a lot of attention to this because it's a little dry and boring. But this is like some pretty salacious, you know, jurisprudence here. It is dry and boring in some regards. But don't forget what we're really talking about at the core here. Patent disputes can involve such huge sums of money. Oh, yeah. That, well, that it does incentivize definitely. companies to theoretically, if they are not, you know, all fully above board, to do some pretty crazy stuff. I mean, the verdict we're discussing here that involved these same patents was $2.2 billion. I mean, that's yeah. a lot. So, <laughs> so you what, can see yeah. how this would spawn out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens next? I mean, I know this has been kind of Haley already kind of alluded to this, but this has kind of been reverberating among the patent crowd for a while, this week anyway. What happens now? What are people going to be looking at? Well, for starters, the PTAB proceeding is continuing, but instead of Open Sky being the petitioner there, Intel is actually taking that role and going up against VSLI about whether or not the patents should have been granted in the first place. Open Sky is just sort of relegated to basically an observer at this point. The PTAB panel has also been asked to reconsider whether or not OpenSky's petition should have been granted in the first place because they get to decide whether or not to grant review. Mm-hmm. And in that decision, that re-review, they have to use a higher compelling merits standard instead of the one they usually use, which is just a reasonable likelihood of success. So a little bit tougher review there to see if this should, in fact, stay at PTAB. OpenSky also has been given two weeks to show why it shouldn't have to pay compensatory damages, including things like attorney's fees, um, and those would be attorney's fees for both OpenSky and VLSI, and to sort of decide how those fees should be laid out if they have to pay them. So a lot of tendrils still ongoing here. But beyond this one singular, very egregious case with really particular facts, obviously, I think the decision is a bit of a warning for attorneys. There is no overall standing requirement to bring an action at PTAB. Any company can do it. So what we could see is an increase in patent holders pushing for things like discovery sanctions against petitioners who they say are gaming the system in an egregious way. Few things in our government are more important than confirming well-vetted Supreme Court nominees. But some senators say the FBI inquiry into Brett Kavanaugh in 2018 pushed credible sources to a tip line that it seemed to ignore. While the Kavanaugh saga is behind us, it does raise questions about the integrity of future nominations. Today, we're joined by Law360 feature reporter Kara Bayless to take a look back at that FBI investigation and what we've learned. Welcome back to the show, Kara. Thanks. It's great to be here. 
We all remember Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. In some ways, it feels like it was just yesterday. The hearings, of course, were very controversial. But it has been a few years, and people may have forgotten the nuance around the FBI being involved in vetting and investigating allegations against Kavanaugh. Can you set the scene for us about what was going on with all of that? Sure. It goes back to June 2018 when Justice Kennedy announced his retirement. And a few weeks later, then-President Donald Trump nominates Kavanaugh, and he goes through a background check. He's been through several of those before because he's had several federal appointments. And then he goes through a normal confirmation process, and then reports begin to surface about this letter accusing Kavanaugh of sexual assault. And eventually it surfaces that these allegations were made by Christine Blase Ford. Uh, She alleges that in the 1980s, um, Kavanaugh attempted to rape her at a house party when they were both teenagers living in suburban Maryland. And she tried to tip off lawmakers, including her senator, Dianne Feinstein, who was then the Judiciary Committee's ranking member. And she tried to do this weeks earlier before Kavanaugh's nomination was even announced when he was on a short list for nominees. Um, but she'd asked to stay anonymous. So these Feinstein stat on the letter for a while, but she eventually brought it to the FBI and then it became public knowledge. And then a bunch of other allegations came out. And one of them was from Deborah Ramirez, who alleged that uh, when she and Kavanaugh were undergraduates at Yale, Uh, He exposed himself to her at a party and thrust his penis in her face. So there were also several other allegations, uh, but those were pretty much either recounted or discredited or so anonymous that they were unable to be investigated. But after uh, the Ford allegation comes out, a few weeks later, the Judiciary Committee holds another confirmation hearing that really focuses on the Ford allegations. And Ford testifies, as does Kavanaugh. And he's asked about the allegations from both Ford and Ramirez, but also about his drinking habits, Uh, I guess because he was allegedly inebriated in many of the stories of his alleged abuse. So he's asked about whether he's ever drunk so much that he's blacked out, that sort of thing. And he denies ever drinking to excess. Uh, So the day after the hearing, the Trump administration announces that it's called for a supplemental background investigation into Kavanaugh. And that's really what we'll be talking about today. The investigation lasted six days and two days after it ended on October 6th, which is today when we're recording, uh, Kavanaugh was confirmed. Yeah. So with that supplemental investigation, they were really trying to clear up things that had come to light and to put this to bed And I know part of your reporting focused on how the FBI set up a tip line. Can you tell me what kind of things were coming to that tip line? And I know your reporting also explores how many people were trying to be tipsters and couldn't get their voices heard. Yeah, one of them was um, Carrie Burcham, who happens to be a partner at Aiken Gump. She's a great example of this. Uh, Kavanaugh had testified not at the big public hearing, but two some Judiciary Committee staffers, he testified about these Ramirez allegations, and he said that he'd never discussed the uh, indecent exposure incident prior to the publication of the New Yorker article about her allegation. And Carrie Burcham felt that she had hard evidence that he'd perjured himself in the form of text messages with a friend who said that Kavanaugh had asked her to talk to the New Yorker's reporters and defend him. So Burcham tries the tip line multiple times, uh, both through the web portal and by calling, and she 
never hears back. At one point, uh, she was told that agents would give her a call and she just sat by the phone waiting for a call that never came. And so she also reached out to several Senate staff offices uh, complaining about this. And at one point, a staffer for a Republican senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, reached out to the FBI about these concerns. And he was told that she should just send her tips to the tip line. So it was kind of this never-ending circle. One other example is Chad Luddington, who was a drinking buddy of Kavanaugh's at Yale. He sent several copies of the same tips to the FBI, saying basically, you know, I don't think it should matter that Kavanaugh drank to excess when he was in his teens and 20s in college, but it should matter that uh, he lied to the Senate Judiciary Committee about that drinking. And Luddington said that he saw Kavanaugh drunk to the point that he was slurring and staggering and belligerent and aggressive. Uh, And so Luddington kept sending this statement to the FBI tip line saying, and you can see day after day, he's sending it uh, saying, you know, I'm waiting to hear back. I still have not heard back. Uh, And with both Luddington and Burcham, you can see them growing more and more desperate by the day because they know this investigation is on a very truncated timeline. So in your reporting, you reviewed more than 4,500 of these Kavanaugh-related tips that came to light through a Freedom of Information Act request, which, man, what a lot to be sifting through. <laughs> what, what exactly, what are the big lessons that you learned about the FBI investigation by going through all of that? Well, I guess first and foremost was that most of these tips were useless. <laughs> I, keep sure. seeing, I keep seeing on social media people saying there were 4,500 tips about sexual assault, and that's just not true. Most of them were just kind of people giving their own personal theories or their um, sort of partisan opinions. Uh, Anytime you open something up broadly to the public, you're going to get some level of just like (laughs) unneeded comments that don't really further anything. I was about to say this is like the comment section of the confirmation process. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Some some real tinfoil hat theories, too. But, uh, you know, there were some that were based on claims of firsthand experience. Um, and so it's unclear if any of those were investigated. And because they were so buried in all that noise, uh, it would have been quite a big job for the FBI uh, to to go through this many tips in however many days. It's unclear even when the tip line was created. But it was some point at some point in September of 2018. Another thing that I found is that more than 1,000 of these tips are fully redacted, and the basis of those redactions are an exemption under the Freedom of Information Act for uh, what's called techniques and procedures of law enforcement. And I spoke to a media law attorney who told me that that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like, why would the content of a tip reveal something about how it was investigated? So that raises questions. Uh, And finally, One of the only things that we can see on these redacted tips is the dates on the report forms that were prepared by FBI staff. And so there's a date at the top of the form, which several former FBI agents tell me is likely the date that the form was prepared. And that sometimes differed from the date and time when the tip was received. Uh, And that would suggest that those tips sat there for days, sometimes weeks, before being written up in an internal memo by the FBI. Yeah, it seems like what you've learned by looking at this material is that in some ways it remains a bit of a black box here. And I know that that has been a complaint that many senators, particularly Democrats, have had about how the investigation as a whole was handled. What have those opponents to what went on said about this process? 
Yeah, uh, that's exactly right. And I would say the sort of leader of that line of questioning would be Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, who's a Democrat from Rhode Island, with one of the most confusing names for a lawmaker, <laughs> yes. Senator Whitehouse. I guess President He's in the White wrong House. branch. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, President Whitehouse would be too on the nose, right? <laughs> but, um, you know, he recently questioned the FBI's director, Christopher Wray, about this. And Ray said that the White House counsel's office at the time, so the Trump administration, controlled the scope of the investigation, including who FBI investigators could talk to for the supplemental investigation. I sort of remember a little controversy about that because they didn't actually, the FBI didn't go back and re-question Kavanaugh himself or Christine Blasey Ford about her allegations, right? That's right. Yeah. They did talk to Ramirez, but not Ford or Kavanaugh. Uh, they only talked to 10 people and for the supplemental investigation. And there are still questions about just sort of what the process was and how much back and forth there was, you know, uh, whether if FBI agents found a tip to be credible, if that could be flagged for the White House counsel's office and they could go to them and say, hey, this seems like something we should look into. Is that okay? Um, And Senator Whitehouse also tells me that he still hasn't received any of the policies or procedures dictating how tips were processed, which might, if we knew that, that might explain some of the date discrepancies we're seeing on these forms. Yeah, I mean, we've obviously talked a lot about Kavanaugh and this very particular set of facts that led to the supplemental investigation. But I think part of the reason we wanted to have you on the show to discuss it is that it could potentially be an ongoing issue as we have other vacancies on the high court or even other uh, offices that require Senate confirmation that we could have other investigations like this. What are the implications on that broader scale? Have we learned any lessons from what happened here? Or is this all too messy to really have taken some move forward action steps? Yeah, I mean, I think for Senator Whitehouse, uh, this is about going forward. I mean, it seems impeachment seems very unlikely. It's a very high hurdle. The process is much like the impeachment of a president. So, but like you say, the FBI conducts investigations into nominees all the time, not just justices, but Article Three judges and any executive branch appointee. So uh, Senator Whitehouse made the point that, you know, if senators can't trust this process, and if the president or their administration has the FBI on such a tight leash that a background check is essentially a rubber stamp, then how can senators trust that process? The FBI says that it was simply operating under a memorandum of understanding it had reached with the Obama administration in 2010 that said, basically, if there's a supplemental investigation, it's controlled by the requesting entity, which would be the White House. So Senator Whitehouse says that he's hoping to codify better procedures for handling these investigations and maintaining FBI independence for the next contentious nominee. And so, you know, there's still a lot of information that needs to come out. We'll just kind of have to see if that can happen. Well, thank you so much for explaining all of this and digging through all those records so that we (laughs) could talk about it. I certainly think this isn't the last controversial nominee we'll see on either side of the aisle. So really going to be interested to see if we put some of those guardrails in place. Well, thank you for having me. (music) 
We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I cannot wait to get into the one you brought for us today. So I'm going to attempt to do something that has a very high degree of difficulty. Someone once told me that like one of the least funny things you can do is try and describe something that The Onion wrote without just <laughs> reading The Onion thing. Because their writing is so precise yes. and specific that when you half recall it, you're like, oh yeah, there's the story about a guy who likes the fall. <laughs> and autumn, and it's like uh, really funny. He drinks pumpkin. Yeah. It's not funny when you say it. Anyway, what we're talking about today is something that you know. I mean, I've I've lost track of like the amount of times that we've talked about the craft of legal writing and like when it's too cute or too long or too winking or too boring and all this stuff. Well, I just want everybody to know that our friends at the Onion, the uh, you know satirical news outlet. I think, have perfected the art of legal writing with an amicus brief that is uh, was filed in support of an Ohio man who was actually jailed for creating this fake news site that was created to mock his local <laughs> police department. <laughs> it is no surprise to me that The Onion has perfected any type of writing. Why yeah. should an actual brief be any different? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But why don't you, like, Throw us the facts here just so we have the groundwork and then we can get into the fun part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's actually a quite interesting case, in my opinion. The issue here centers around a man named Anthony Novak, and he is a resident of Parma, Ohio. And he made a Facebook page that basically presented itself as this like farcical news outlet that would post crude parody stories about the local police force. He was not a fan of the local police force, and he would post these sort of outlandish, very obviously satirical news stories. And for that, he was arrested, put in jail, indicted, tried for, eventually acquitted of disrupting or impairing police function by creating this page. So, you know, he was put through the legal ringer, eventually acquitted, but then... He turned around and sued the police officers and the city for a number of claims, saying that this retaliation was basically a violation of his First Amendment rights, and he was arrested without probable cause, things like that. It got all the way up to the Sixth Circuit, and the Sixth Circuit basically slammed the door on the entire suit, basically saying that the officers are covered by qualified immunity, which we've talked about before on the show, usually in the context of police violence. Yeah, this is a unique uh, situation for that to, to crop a, up. It's a different iteration of the same concept, though, of just saying, like, this is them, these police officers acting in their professional capacity. You can't sue them for that. And now this guy, Novak, has taken this suit to the Supreme Court. He's filed for cert. And that's uh, that's where we're at right now with this. Okay. First of all, it makes me shudder a little bit to think that anybody can be jailed for something they wrote. Um, <laughs> as professional writers, all of us, that's not a great feeling. But let's turn now to The Onion, which I just, I know there's so many gems in this. Alex, I want yeah. you to give me some of the like high points from their brief. Yeah, I'll read you a few of these sort of spicier bars here. I would definitely recommend everybody check out the brief. You can you can Google it and find it pretty easily. It was kind of burning up the internet uh, all this week. But The Onion styles itself as America's finest news source. <laughs> Who am I to dispute that? 
after Law 360, of course. And <laughs> I just have to say, like, speaking neutrally, this is just like a very sharply written piece of like legal ephemera. And they filed it on Novak's behalf. Basically, I mean, they have a pretty obvious interest in satirical and parody writing being protected, being allowed to flourish without these like the the Sixth Circuit's decision basically amounted to like, if you're writing parody, you should say so up front. Which we all know it makes it really funny when you have to be like, by the way, this is parody. By the way, I'm trying to be funny. By the way, Uh, this is a joke. That comes to the core of The Onion's brief, where it's like, if you make us say that we're like a parody outfit, kind of undercuts the satire we're trying to do. It just to be like, you're treating your readers like children and all of this. Let me just read a few bars from the brief here. These are very good. Please. The Onion cannot stand idly by in the face of a ruling that threatens to disembowel a form of rhetoric that has existed for millennia that is particularly potent in the realm of political debate and that, purely incidentally, forms the basis of the Onion's writer's paychecks. (laughs) Love that. Uh, Also, this. The Onion, this is actually a pretty astute kind of like shot across the bow at the judicial system itself. The Onion knows that the federal judiciary is staffed entirely by total Latin dorks. They (laughs) quote... They quote Caltullus in their in in the original Latin in chambers. They sweetly whisper stare decisis into their <laughs> spouse's ears. They mutter qui bono under their breath while picking up after their neighbor's dogs. I feel a little assaulted by that because I am a dork who took Latin in high school. And I don't know, I might go up to my husband later and just be like, stare decisis. <laughs> okay. Here's here's one more. The point of all this is not that it is funny when deluded figures of authority mistake satire for the actual news, even though that can be extremely funny. Rather, it's that the parody allows these figures to puncture their own sense of self-importance by falling for what any reasonable person would recognize as an absurd escalation of their own views. God bless. Well, here's the thing. Like, this is, to my view, incredible writing. Yeah. The the Onion's general counsel actually talked to Law 360 and explained. I was actually curious when that person got quoted in the story. I was like, is this lawyer going to, like, keep up the, like, kayfabe? Keep, like, keep the mask on of, like, satirical commentary? But the lawyer explained that it was basically this collaborative effort between the company's lawyers And its editorial team, basically like the lawyers drew up this brief and then, I don't know, the comedy writers come in and punch it up like it's some lackluster Hollywood screenplay. I think that's like, I'm very interested in that process, but. It also makes me really wish that everybody that filed a brief in any proceeding that we have to write about would just go ahead and get those comedy writers to punch Punch them up up a little. Yeah, Yeah. punch them up. Um, And anyway, what, what comes out of that process is this, what I think is this regardless of how you feel about the issue, um, is this really amazing blend of like very precise wit and also very cogent, very sharp legal analysis. So like I say, you should definitely go check it out if you're interested in that. Yeah, it's proof yet again that you can make really spot on points, even in something (laughs) as serious as the Supreme Court brief with a lot of humor. I I just love it. I think we have a little bit of time left 
producer Kelly's going to be mad at me, I think, but uh, <laughs> we're going to press on. I did just want to, we, you know, we're all sort of vaguely in, this, in a similar age demographic. We came of age with the onion, I suspect. I want to just rattle off a couple of our favorite onion headlines. Uh, Amber, you want to go first? I'm very excited to be asked this question because the minute you brought it up, I thought immediately to one that I reflect on probably once a year. And this is a story that came out when I was in college. So <laughs> it's from 99. And I've thought about it every year since. This is not at all serious. It's not about legal stuff at all. Here's the headline. Pudding factory disaster brings slow, creamy death to town below. <laughs> the reason I love it so much is that the whole story is punctuated with stuff like a rich, smooth tidal wave of yeah, horrifying right. yeah. pudding goodness. Yeah, that's throughout. It's like scrumptious hell on earth. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. wonderful. When you come from an industrial center, West Virginia, this kind of like speaks to your uh, sort sure. of... Yeah, it speaks yeah, yeah, to yeah. both my sweet tooth and my upbringing. It's yeah, got yeah, it all. Yeah. Haley, what about you? My favorite is a uh, is a classic about my my hometown, which I think Alex, you may have even like quoted at me a few times. Yeah, but maybe. it is rural Nebraskan. Not sure he could handle frantic pace of Omaha. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really good too. It's Truly so a funny. classic. Yeah. Well, it's so funny you bring the local angle because the Onion. I, it started in Wisconsin, I believe, Madison, Wisconsin, but it's based in Chicago, sure. where I'm from. And so a lot of the, um, I, I'm I'm from the suburbs of Chicago, and a lot of the early datelines of Onion stories come from Chicago and Chicago suburbs specifically. And my, one of my favorites is Burger King looks open. Which is <laughs> which is Dateline Schaumburg, Illinois, which is where yeah, I'm from. And it just go. chronicles a guy like driving by late at night to see if Burger King is actually open. I would also be remiss if I didn't mention It Only Tuesday. That is, of course, Ooh, a classic. classic of the working class. Uh, I also wanted to shout out a couple of legal uh, oh, yes, uh, please. Uh, specific ones just before we get out of here. I'm a huge fan of this. Jurisprudence fetishist gets off on technicality. Oh, <laughs> I mean, the I mean, word who play, the word, the word I remember play. that one. Oh, yeah, man. yeah, yeah. And then the uh, last one I'll say, of course, this was in the Onion's short-lived video uh, era, which was great. Very oh, underrated. They're so good. Headline, Supreme Court rules death penalty is totally badass. <laughs> uh, which features an amazing video. You can just go look it up of like, there's like courtroom sketches and they're like just saying like, even the liberals who are opposed to this think it's completely awesome to watch someone die. <laughs> uh, well, great stuff. Big thanks to The Onion for all of these laughs over the years. I yes. was thrilled to go back and read my pudding story yet again. So hope they keep doing what they're doing for years to come. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good enough place to leave it. Another great show in the books, gang. Yeah, thanks yeah. everybody for being with me today. And I also want to thank all the other people that helped make Pro Se possible, including our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our guests this week, Kara Bayless, and our contributing reporters, Jonathan Capriel, Danny Cass, Jess Crocktangle, Jeff Montgomery, and Leslie Pappas. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, that's where you can leave us a written review and five stars on your favorite podcast platform so that other people know more about our show. 
If you want to read more about anything we've talked about, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.